Hi, this is Tony Levin of King Crimson, and you're listening to the Modern Musicology Podcast. You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, music lovers, and welcome to Modern Musicology. Alan is otherwise engaged playing with his band tonight, so I, Anthony, get the uh, privilege of hosting. And with me this evening, I have the most wonderful co-hosts, Steph. Hello, everybody. And Rob. Sup. 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 We hope everyone is staying safe in these crazy times as we're recording. We are coming to the end of a week of storms across most of the uh, southern and eastern U.S. So uh, we hope that you're all being safe. And we realize that with some of our recent guests, we have picked up a few more listeners. So if this is your first time listening to a brand new episode without any interviewees, welcome. We're very pleased to have you. And we hope that you find the three of us as interesting as you found Tony Levin or the guys from Heart or anyone else that we've had recently. Yeah. So this episode, we are talking about two and three hit wonders. Uh, Most people are well aware of the curse of the one hit wonder. Think for more recent times, someone like Gautier, right? With somebody I used to know. But some artists actually manage to get a little more success than that and manage to have two or three before they are relegated to obscurity outside of the top 40 or top 100. So we're going to focus on those. And where I really want to start this discussion is, firstly, how would you define a two or three hit wonder? Because as I was looking through some examples, some of them are very well-established artists. I mean, technically, on a U.S. basis, you could label Deep Purple as a two-hit wonder. Yeah. Which is wild. So what kind of makes an artist a two- or three-hit wonder? And why do they not seem to quite have the staying power to make them a more established chart act? So I'm just going to kind of open it up to the floor on that. So my criteria was I looked at sort of jumping out of the gate sort of like american chart success or just general familiarity to the average listener who's not us right so you know picking a band you know they've got two or three hits that does not mean that the rest of their catalog is awful it just means they've only had two or three hits that resonated into the popular realm that could be because you know they're a band that you know, had a soundtrack song that did well. It could be a band that did a change of pace and just did a really poppy record. It also could be that the, no offense, Steph, but the record label wasn't smart enough to think <laughs> of singles after the second or third yeah. single, and they just lost traction on the album. Right. That's kind of where I'm coming at. From. I mean, I am kind of the same. I, I was looking at the charts, and I was tr- I was mostly focused on the U.S. charts. I mean, bias because I am from America and that's, those are the songs that I know, but I was noticing that some of the acts I was, was picking, uh, tonight do have more success, like say in the UK or whatever, but I was generally trying to go by the U S like billboard to, uh, you know, top 100. And some I did like top 40. That was sort of my, 
And I, I had to take a similar approach. I mean, growing up in the UK, there are bands that I think were wildly successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here they only had two or three hits. All Saints are a great example of that, as were Banana Rama. Oh, yes. I was, uh, they are on my know, list. Exactly. I, I, they are on my list. Help, yeah. We can come back to them and talk about those in a minute. But yeah. having to almost look at it from a, a different lens because I grew up in a different country. Yeah. And I had to think, well, we're I'm sure we have listeners across the globe at this point, but certainly all four of us who host this show are based in the US and I think we have a predominantly US based audience. Right. So I had to kind of refocus that and and take it away from my UK roots and start thinking about it from a, a more US centric perspective. Yeah. I know we want to get into some examples. So, uh, and, and Rob, I know you're normally very well prepared for this. So, Rob, why don't you take it away with a couple of your favorite two or three hit wonders? I'm taking this in directions that probably neither of you were expecting. Um, I'm looking back. I mean, I went back to like my childhood and started looking through 45s and things, right, as well. Um, Steph, you will probably be, remember this and, and Alan will. Um, Anthony, I don't think you've heard of the Hudson Brothers. But the Hudson brothers were absolutely huge in the 70s. They were just like long hair, mustaches, you know, they just looked like they fell out of the out of the smoke shop, right? But they had a huge hit in So You Are a Star, and then another one in Rendezvous, and then nothing else, Mm -hmm. right? But they sold tons of records. And the other one is, and this is gonna sound really weird, the Ozark Mountain Daredevils. Jackie Blue was like everywhere when i was a kid totally. and you still hear it right and then they have another track called heaven but jackie blue was like this huge record and they are one of those bands that has a huge cult following they're um a band that has a pretty big catalog of albums and people tend to like their albums more than their singles which is i think another thing you have to weigh in too is this a band that normally does albums yeah. right rather than, you know, singles. So those are two. I kind of wanted to go to the uh, – a lot of these I found were in the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s, so I kind of wanted to go back a little bit to the 70s and just stuff I remember hearing a little bit as a kid. Yeah. Um, and I thought, you know, looking at this, I thought that the Ozark Mountain Daredevils had, like, a huge, huge back catalog of singles, but they didn't. And I was really surprised about the Hudson Brothers because literally, you know, in the mid – 70s they were everywhere so that kind of surprised me as well and, and sorry to interrupt rob i did want to focus on that because you raised a good point about albums versus singles which i think is why you get some of those very well established bands and i'm specifically looking at deep purple here mm-hmm, who technically mm-hmm. you could say are a two-hit wonder with smoke on the water and hush but they have so many very successful albums that are absolutely fantastic but they were predominantly an album focused band yeah. Um, whereas, you know, when you start looking at kind of more traditional pop acts, you would expect to do a lot better with singles and see ones that, of those that are two or three hit wonders. It starts to get a bit more interesting. Also depends on the era, too, because, yes, you know, the single in the 80s and the 90s was a big deal. It, now it's not. It's virtually non-existent. And then early 2000s, it was kind of a big deal. And the 70s, it kind of became a thing, but not really, you know. Um, 
it's just really once radio really got commercial is at least for me is when this started to become a phenomenon nobody talks about one or two hit wonders in the 50s because the records were so easy and disposable to make so i think that's that's part of it too and it's it's interesting on that note rob you, you mentioned now and i think the, the climate of downloading and the fact that you can have songs that hit number one because of listens on Spotify or downloads from Apple Music or what have you. To your point, it has made the single irrelevant. There are still songs that a label will push. Right. But in theory... Anything can you be could, a hit. I mean, you can have someone like, I, I guess Taylor Swift is probably a good example, where 10 tracks suddenly all chart at once. Exactly. Ed Sheeran does that a lot yeah. as well. And. That kind of, I think, reduces the potential now for a two or three hit wonder. If someone puts out a phenomenal album that really hits the zeitgeist at the right time, all those songs are going to chart at once, uh, which is very, very different from the singles dominated era that you just mentioned of the 80s, 90s and 2000s. And Rob, to your so back to your 70s point, uh, there's a couple bands too that I was surprised that didn't have more hits or so, for example, Redbone with Come and Get Your Love, which you would just, again, a nonstop airplay song, um, hit like number five uh, on the charts. And then and also the Witch Queen of New Orleans. I mean, that to me, they were sort of omnipresent. Yet that's pretty much all they charted with. And same thing with uh, a band called Steeler's Wheel with Stuck in the Middle with You, which, of course, got a sort of <laughs> resurgence with the uh, what was the movie with John Travolta and. Oh my God, I'm blanking out. But anyway, and Star. So that was their other single. Um, so I, you, I, you know, you find these bands that don't have as much as you thought they might have back then. Also, it's sort of like on the opposite end of the spectrum, you know? I'm curious. Um, through a lot of the 2000s in Britain, you know, the equi our equivalent of American Idol, uh, which was the X Factor, really pushed out you know, every year a new a new winner who would go on to chart two on two or three occasions. And then that would be pretty much all you hear of them. Was that the same deal with American Idol here, or did they tend to go on to be a lot more successful? I think only I mean not many. Like Carrie Underwood, of course, is huge, Jennifer Hudson, um, and um the she does the talk show, what's her name? Um Oh Kelly Clarkson. Kelly. I mean amazing. I love her. But I don't and of course, there was a few that that didn't, you know, win the show, but that went on to have successful careers. For actually, I don't think Jennifer Hudson won. I'm not sure, but um, I didn't even know she was on the show. To be honest, oh really? Yeah, I think, yeah, it, yeah. I believe it was American Idol. It was one of those shows, but I don't think. I I, I think you might be right where they where they didn't have them. You know, success after success. May I speak about <laughs> Delicious Vinyl, the label that I um, kind of worked through Island Records. Because I have a couple, Absolutely. like I want to take it in the the rap direction for a second. Um, when I was at Island in uh, in 1988 and 89, we had we we distributed the Delicious Final label, which was started by Mike Ross and Matt Dyke in in 87 as an indie label, and Island just distributed them for a while. And two of my, I just absolutely loved that that whole experience of working Tone Loke, who had, of course, had a wild thing in Funky Cold Medina. Um, both of those were, were massive hits. And also Young MC with Busta Move and Principal's Office. 
I mean, that was just such a great time. And that they, they had a sort of lightness about their, their rapping that was and their songs that was sort of like, like things were moving in a, a pretty heavy way, like public enemy in that, in that genre, you know, and, and I mean, NWA wasn't really massive at that point, but so I think this was a more lighthearted kind of whole experience. And it just, I don't know really why they didn't have more success after that, but they didn't. Those were their, both of their two really popular songs. So. Yeah. I think that's interesting as well. And then I'm going to um, throw out a couple more mm-hmm. as well. Um, a couple of these really surprised me when I started digging around too. Um, I had thought of Wang Chung on my own because they had Dance All Days and then they had Mm -hmm. To Live and Die in L.A., which the score and the soundtrack for that is fantastic. But then they had that huge record with Let's Go and Everybody Have Fun Tonight. And then they just literally vanished from the face of the earth. Right? They couldn't get a hit between (laughs) To Live and Die in L.A. and Everybody Have Fun Tonight. Right? But then after those two singles, they couldn't go anywhere. Yeah. Right? Um, and I think they, that, that's a case of they might have been too British. I just think that mm. people just didn't. I don't know. So they were one I thought of. Another one that kind of is surprising is Garbage because uh, they oh, had Stupid Girl pick. and Only Happy When It Rains, right? But their catalog of albums is fantastic. And every time they go on tour, people get excited and they they sell well, yeah. you know? Um, so I think they're definitely an artist that's in there. And um, – Again, falling into artists that we totally forgot about is Ugly Kid Joe with Hi. the cover of um, uh, every, they did uh, Cats in the Cradle. That's it. And mm. then Everything About You. Right. Yeah. Which also surprised me. I mean, I don't think anybody looks upon Ugly Kid Joe, though, and thinks, wow, these guys no. should have been huge. But, right. Um, they're kind of like the offspring before the offspring were the offspring. They're kind of just like this disposable party band. Yeah that had two hits and they're done, but everyone thought they'd have one, but they ended up having two. So. Yeah. That reminds me of a little bit of like, um, it, not, not ugly kid Joe, but more of, of garbage um, till Tuesday, which I, of course voices carry, but then they also had what about love in 1986. Now, yeah. of, of course, Amy Mann went on to amazing, crazy, amazing albums. And she still has a, a an amazing career to this day. So it's not surprising that, maybe till Tuesday, you know, whatever, they broke up and she went on to a solo career. So you can't say, what about, yeah. why didn't they have more hits? She did, you know, she she continued, so. And in the same vein, the Hooters with, and we danced and they had, you know, the zombie song, right? All you zombies or whatever. Yeah. Um, but then that band, he pretty much realized this isn't going to work. So he became a songwriter and wrote a bunch of hits for everybody else. Right, right. Yeah. Which is even more interesting, right? When you get that, because it's clearly someone who can write. Yeah. But for whatever reason, in that case, he as the mm-hmm. as the person in the band wasn't working out or the rest of the band wasn't working yeah. out. And I'm, and I'm also fascinated with people that are like absolutely friggin' huge and then like the bottom drops out, right? Mm-hmm. So like Corey Hart, for example, because he had Never Surrender and Sunglasses at Night. He was like everywhere. Yes, he was. Right? And he had, I think, a mild hit single with. How do I remember this stuff? Um, <laughs> a mild, a mild hit with "Boy in the Box," right? But after that, nothing. But he has gone on to write a bunch of other songs, I think, for other people as well. Mm-hmm. And I just think that's kind of fascinating that you know they just sort of know. Okay, I'm giving up the ghost, and I wonder if some of this is also are they just fed up with the business of it, right? 
Like they put out an album, they worked hard to make an album. They just didn't like how the label experience was or the stress of trying to have a hit single that they just decided to write songs. Or it also could be that there's more money in writing songs and doing the uh, the licensing than there is, you know, making records. And then I think there are bands that kind of just hit at the wrong time, right? Their, their first few tracks hit the scene at just the right time, but then the scene moves on and they don't. Exactly. Like there's a lot of disco examples for, for that. Yeah. There, there was, yeah. I, I was kind of like grouping them by, by um, genres in a way, some, some of them. And like, if you're in, if you're like late seventies, you know, you got like sister sledge with we are family and he's the greatest answer. And then boom, bye. <laughs> Taste of Honey, mm-hmm. Boogie Oogie Oogie. I can't even say it. Boogie Oogie Oogie <laughs> and Sukiyaki. And then bye. Silver Convention, Fly Rob and Fly and Get Up and Boogie. And then also Van McCoy with the Hustle and the Shuffle. I mean, those are just examples of the genre just went poof, goodbye. You I mean, know? I haven't thought about the shuffle <laughs> in a long time. <laughs> yeah. But I was also thinking about that with metal because there was definitely like our show with Tom kind of had a lot of examples of bands. You know, it's funny too. There's bands that you think that were so massive, like Judas Priest, they are so massive, but they only charted really with another thing coming and heading out to the highway here at least. You know, but their catalog is massive. (laughs) And the irony with Priest is I think in the UK, they probably only charted with... um, Breaking the Law and um, uh, what's the other one from that album? Oh, did Breaking the Law chart here? Uh, maybe it did. I don't think it did. Yeah. I, I, I think, think it, it was only heading out to the highway and you got another thing coming. But there were two from British Steel that charted pretty well in the UK. Mm-hmm. And after that, similar story. They kind of dropped off a bit. How about Quiet Riot? I mean, here they charted with Bang Your Head and Come On, Feel the Noise. But was were they more popular in the UK? Do you remember, Anthony? or? I don't think they, I mean, I, I wasn't yeah, I know around, you weren't even but, around, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I, I don't think they were. I think Quiet Riot are interesting because they were almost a victim of their own success yes. in that they opened the door for that entire scene. And then everyone else, the Motley Crews and what have you effectively overtook them. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And, you know, there would be no Motley Crew if Quiet Riot hadn't broken big. And Twisted Sister, you know, they were around the same time. So like. Who I think you could also argue fit in this category with. um, We're not going to take it. Ain't going to take it no more. And um, I want to rock. Yep. Mm -hmm. And they kind of had a hit with Leader of the Pack, but not really. It was like in the top 50. That's, uh, you know. Yeah. But. And we are talking about three hit wonders as well. So they're still in scope. Yeah, they're in the scope. They're in the scope. (laughs) So is Skid Row. Um, Speaking of that, just in that genre, because they had huge, massive success with 18 in Life and Youth Gone Wild in 89. And then I Remember You was also pretty massive. But then, you know. And I I think with that scene, and this comes back to the interview we did with Tom, it was just so saturated. Yes. That. Unless you were the top at the top of it, like Motley Crue were, you were competing with everyone else for you know effectively second best at any given time, which meant most of them got their their moment in the spotlight. But it was mm-hmm. just a couple of tracks. And again, I think that too was sort of a very disposable time, where like okay, we're going to work this band and then put them away, mm-hmm. you know, and then the next thing comes. Right? It was very much a recycler. Um, Anthony, circling back to what you said about 
bands falling out of the times. I I really think in the eighties that this idea of, you know, the cold war really shifted everything because like you had Frankie go to Hollywood, which was huge with two tribes and relax. And then the cold war ends and they can't really, or is ending and they can't really recover. Right. And they break up and the second album is just kind of a mess. And then you've got, you know, a lot of bands like ABC with Poison Arrow and um, yeah. uh, Look of Love. And even though they had How to Be a, Zill- a Millionaire, right? They like the idea of like excess and greed and glam of the early 80s was very much disappearing in vogue in the mid 80s. So a lot of these bands were trying to find their footing and and doing other things later. And I think that I think the mid 80s and the mid 90s, you had a lot of transition musically. So I I think you have audiences trying to figure out what they're doing, right? You've got, you know, for example, in, you know, the 90s, you've got the very beginning of all those Manchester bands and they're doing great. Oh, yeah. And then all of a sudden, Nirvana drops, who you could argue is in this group with they, Come you, As You Are. They and, are. And they Spirit, are in this right? group. <laughs> then Nirvana drops and then like all those bands got left in the dust and they could have put out Sgt. Pepper and it wouldn't have mattered, mm-hmm. right? So I think there is something to what you said, Anthony, about the time changing yeah. it as well and i think you see the same thing happening in the early 2000s mm-hmm. both pre and then post 9-11 you know I, I think the 90s were a time of huge optimism then 9-11 happens in 2001 yep things got real and, serious <laughs> yeah and suddenly you know the the socio-political atmosphere is different and of course that has an impact on music Yes, and I think there were a number of artists who were really starting to hit their stride in, you know, two thousand and the first half of two thousand one, and suddenly, mm-hmm. all falls away from them. I'm thinking uh, potentially Dido is a good example of that. Yes, she's a perfect example, and you know, Dido was everywhere because she had a song and a couple soundtracks, and she was on a label that really worked her record. So that makes sense. And she had that track with Eminem that really. Got her in the spotlights as well. I'm going to throw it back way to the 80s, though, to to a lighthearted <laughs> um, time. Because I there's so many uh, bands that I could have picked, I feel like, from this era. But th- there's just a few that you think that were so massive then, but then just fell away. Which, Flock of Seagulls, they had Iran, Space Age Love Song, and Wishing. And then there's probably pretty much just like, goodbye. Um the motels, which also, which is sort of upsetting, because I really loved Martha's voice and writing. I think only "The Lonely" and "Suddenly Last Summer" were the only two singles that they really had that did did well, really. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> I was also thinking about the Greg Kinn band because, ugh, I hated them, but they had massive success with the breakup song and Jeopardy, and then Lucky. And again, then that was pretty much it. So, um, and a band I really liked who I, I thought they should have had more success after what they what they had was the Romantics. Well, uh, they had what I like about you and talking in your sleep. And I just I don't know they didn't. I think they had a lot of internal strife too, and things were going on with with band members and yeah, maybe label stuff too. They were on my list too, as is Scandal, because they had, you know, The Warrior totally. and uh, Goodbye to You. And then I think Love's Got a Line. They yes. had like three. Yeah, they were another band too. That's just sort of like, these guys are great. And they got oh, sort of. 
Uh, again, up that's a band I wasn't crazy about when they were out, but when I think of, I, I love her now. I mean, she's she was so super talented, and she had quite a bit of solo success, uh, you know, after that. But um, but again, that band broke up not only because of internal issues, but they also had some record company issues too. Mm-hmm. You know, what's a band that really fascinates me that they had a, a, a huge success in the seventies and then huge success in the eighties is golden earring. They, they had a, a hit in 1973 with radar love. And then in 1982, they had twilight zone and it was like totally two different genres of music really. Yeah. And they managed to have a massive success like nine or 10 years later with, with another song. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, I think that is kind of interesting, too, how spaced out it was. Yeah. The same thing with the Human League, right? Because you had Don't You Want Me, and then years later you had Human, right? Which also did really well. which is such a good song. But in England, I mean, the amount of Human League singles that are regarded as classic or, you know, important singles is huge, right? Um, And even here in my own mind, like, Fascination is great. Like, there are so many songs that I would think. That's why it was hard to pick on this list. I was thinking, because when I was listening to these albums, wow, it was like, I thought every song was a hit when I was young like that, you know? But there weren't. <laughs> Even Tears for Fears, because they had Shout, and then they had um, Sowing the Seeds of Love, mm-hmm. and then really everybody wants to rule the world. And then Head Over Heels kind of did okay, but it didn't do super great. But they were kind of in that yeah thing too, where they had a, a run of like a year or two years with Big Chair, and then Sowing the Seeds was everywhere. And I think with them, you know, something like Mad World only really got a lot of recognition, you know, 2004 or whenever it was, when the cover version that was on the Donnie Darko soundtrack showed up. Which is funny because to me that was, you know, in my mind at 18 years old or whatever, that was a huge hit, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I did want to hone in on what you said, Rob, about, bands who were big in the UK because obviously this is something that's near and dear to my heart and looking at various lists as I was doing research for this episode I was like oh but they were huge back home Um, you know All Saints who were kind of the mature slightly more grown-up version of the Spice Girls at least that's how they were marketed massive I mean every track they put out from their first couple of albums back home was huge and as I'm looking them up here it seemed that it was like uh, just like two or two. three. Yeah, something like uh, that. I think I know where it's at and never ever. Um, yeah. Which is just wild to me because I just, I think of them as being massive and on this side of the pond, they just weren't. Yeah. They're, uh, so that we were talking about earlier in the episode, then Bananarama, that I think would fall mm-hmm. into that category too, right? Because here they really, Cruel Summer was huge in uh, 83. Venus went to number one in 85 on, on the charts here. And then uh, I heard a rumor was their only other charting one. I believe it was 86. Yeah. How I, many people here would equally recognize some of their other songs? Like, you know, Na Na Hey Hey Kiss well, and Well, I would, but... Yeah. yeah. And, and like, I love Robert De Niro's Waiting when that thing yeah. came out. Right. Um, and that just kind of came out and didn't go anywhere, but it set the table for, you know... Well, that's why I was shocked when I was doing the research for the, for them because I really thought they would they would not fit in this category and and again in the UK they wouldn't right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
You know, but they a lot, and this is the thing that happens with a lot of the Stock Aitken Waterman bands is they have like two, maybe three hits and they're done. Because you had Bananarama and then you had Rick Astley with Never Gonna Give You Up and then Together Forever. Mm-hmm. And then really not much else after that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, another thing I want to put out there too, and we've talked about this a little bit in the past, is only if he would have listened to other people and not himself Terrence Trent Darby would have been absolutely huge. He's on my list too, yeah. Because <laughs> Wishing Well was fantastic. Sign, Sign Your Name, name. was great. He could have easily just had a really incredible career, and he just completely blew it. What was the deal with him? What happened? Why did he? He was, uh, he one, he didn't like the producer. He didn't like the label. And wow. nobody likes their producer and their, and their label, and I get <laughs> that, right? But he, he just didn't really listen to any other suggestions for the second album, right? He just knew what he wanted to do, and that was it. And, you know, there are, there are hundreds of cases where, like, you hear an album and the first song on side A and the first song on side B are sort of like, you know, screw you, here's your singles, here's the rest of the album I wanted to make, right? He didn't even do that. Mm-hmm. So that's a case of self-sabotage. And then also Lisa, Lisa, and Cult Jam. Um, because they had, uh, lost an emotion. And then that incredibly friggin' catchy head to toe that was just like, Oh my God. So painfully catchy that it still, uh, rings through, you know, and new shoes, same thing. Point of no return. And I can't wait. Right. Like that whole little block of eighties. And also into the nineties, like the time, like with jungle love and that was just a lot of Sheila E and stuff like that. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Rob, you raised an interesting point uh, with Rick Astley because some of these artists are technically two or three hit wonders, but their other songs have almost faded into obscurity, even though they were hits at the time. My generation, for example, only knows Rick Astley for Never, never Gonna Give You Up. Yet he clearly had another hit because you mentioned it, and candidly, I'd never even heard of it. So there are definitely artists here who who fit this category, but are still really now only remembered for one song. Well, I, and would yeah. tend to be, I would have labeled Rick Astley as a one hit wonder because I didn't know. Well, I, I almost didn't know though, you know, the second Rick, I mean, there's a few bands that I like, I had that too on my list, like Jesus Jones, you only remember yep. them for right here, right now. Right. But real, real, real was really popular. And um, the Rembrandts, if you think about I'll be there for you, but they had a yeah. big hit in 1990 with just the way it is baby. So mm-hmm. yes, there are bands that you think are one hit wonders, but they aren't. <laughs> and I'm thinking Natalie Imbruglia is another yes. example of that, you know, torn. And then she had wishing I was there. Nobody remembers mm-hmm. wishing I was there. No. Yeah. But then you have, you know, bands that have like a huge back catalog, like Erasure. And they have Chains of Love and a little respect that chart, but then nothing. But their catalog is, like, yeah. incredibly dense, right? Or even Dead or Alive with, again, Stock Aikman and Waterman. Um, uh-huh. You've got You Spin Me Around and you've got Brand New Lover, but they had, like, I think Youthquake had, like, six, five singles off of it, right? Um, and it's, it's a shame with a band like Dead or Alive because after that, they – just relied on endless remixes of You Spin Me Round. And that was their only output after about 1996. Well, that's just their fault. <laughs> but, but they knew they had a hit. Yeah, you know? true. Yeah. Milk it um, for all it's worth. <laughs> but speaking of, of established bands that you know they have huge back catalogs, I'm thinking Talking Heads, 
Yes. You know, I was surprised to see them on lists. I was surprised to see The Cure, given how ugly iconic they are. I had thought about them too, because basically just like Heaven and Love Song are the two big chart hits, right? And Friday I'm in Love. Yeah, which is a little later, yeah. I guess. I mean, I, I. It's funny. Again, that's another band that I would. Yeah, I would not have thought when I saw them on those lists. I just. I could. I was like, no, that can't be because every song's a hit. <laughs> or even a band with absolute fucking superstars like Cream. Right. Right. They would fit on this list with uh, "Sunshine of Your Love" and "White Room" and maybe "Crossroads." But suddenly. Their, their thoughts of is an absolutely legendary mm-hmm. band, but they only had two or three hits. Yeah. And I yeah. think only one album. And, you know, the Fine Young Cannibals had an amazing first album, right? And they're only really remembered for the Raw and the Cooked with Good Thing and She Drives Me Crazy, mm-hmm. right? And maybe later, Don't Ask Me to Choose. But um, they put out a really dense two-catalog career um, and then got really smart with all their licensing. Um, if you were lucky, I will sing the chorus that she drives me crazy later. <laughs> if you're lucky, <laughs> if we're lucky, <laughs> I want, I'll, we're going to hold you that, that we're going to hold you to that. Um, I want to name a band that ha- sort of like burned bright and then, and then really kind of disappeared, which is the knack. What, they were so mm. hot in the late 70s and in like 1980 with My Sharona and Good Girls Don't and Baby Talks Dirty. I mean, that was, it was ubiquitous on the radio. And then they were gone. And uh, another band that I never liked, <laughs> but I I feel like they should have done more. Maybe they did. Maybe um, the, the lead singer did afterwards. I'm not sure. But Mr. Mr., were so popular with Broken Wings and Kyrie, and then Is It Love, I think it was called, and it was like 80, it was like right after that, right after the two huge hits in 85. But I don't know. I, I think they, that, I don't even know the lead singer's name, to be honest, but he had a great voice, and I feel like he could have gone on to better, bigger and better things. Maybe he did. Can, can you imagine if he's like one of the songwriters of all time? And I'm just like, who's that guy? But I mean, certainly <laughs> they have such a legacy. They even get name checked by Train on that god awful song that Train did. Oh, no. <laughs> I'd like to not think about Train. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I, I, I thought about them. So you had to as well. <laughs> this is when I get banned from ever That's hosting right. the show again. You could also argue about the bangles because you had manic monday and walk like an egyptian uh and even though lazy playing. yeah well, and lazy and there's also lazy shame so lazy shade so maybe not um no but we're two or three hit wonders i mean yeah but you know again a band with a much deeper catalog than what they should have oh yeah they're oh, yeah. I mean, crazy and this is an example of an album orientated band but with an insane catalog pink floyd Oh, you know, yeah. you got money and you've got another brick in the wall part two. And then the rest of the catalog's incredible. But those are the only two songs that ever really charted. When did money chart? Uh, when, yeah, when did that chart? What year was that? 73. Right. And, and that's then, another interesting example, sort of like Golden Earring, right? 73. And then, ah, uh, well, no, Brick in the Wall was like. 1980. Was 80, yeah. Okay. Still. So seven years. Yeah. Quite a distance between having 
having one massive hit and then another massive hit. And that's, and, and that's it being a massive hit, you know? Yeah. And there really should be an investigation into the Hague, into men without hats and pop goes the world. Um, and in a good way or in a, why do they even exist way? It's like, it is truly one of the most hideously lyrical songs ever written. I mean, the melody is really catchy, right? But like, if you have to wonder why you have to dress your drummer up like a snowman to get people to watch your band, one, and then you cry that you can't get any hits, well, that might have something to do with it. But the lyrics are just friggin' terrible, right? Um, so, yes, you know, where you had like this interesting progressive chord change stuff going on in the safety dance and uh, some interesting melody stuff. Um, and then you get 10 years, almost 10 years later or whatever with Pop Goes the World. It's like, come on. I'd know, Rob. You can dance if you want to, my friend. <laughs> I, that record is fantastic, even though that thing has been released 10,000 times as well. But the other, I mean, it's it's sort of like, you know, you have a one, it would be better to be a band known for one great hit than one really great hit and then complete another shite as your second hit <laughs> in the two hit wonder one, right? <laughs> Speaking of one great hit, and then having, I mean, they did they did have another hit, but the one thing that they're remembered for, I think, extreme with more than words. And then they had from that same album, I believe it was Wholehearted, which charted at number four. I mean, more than words was number one, of course, but and yeah. that is, I know it's cheesy and blah blah blah, whatever. But that if you just sit down and listen to that song, it's it's beautiful. The lyrics are beautiful, mm -hmm. and the song is really just produced well and just so simplistic, but so heartfelt. And as a matter of fact, I was sort of researching that because I was thinking like, wouldn't that be a nice song to cover in just a different way? And how would that be done? But I re I then was researching it and so many people have covered that song that it's just, you mm -hmm. know, it's not, it's not to be bothered with, you know, but. Um, so I will see your extreme <laughs> and raise you a Nelson. Oh. Uh, oh, who had nowhere the Kinnear career of the father. Like that. <laughs> I, I no. mean, I'm, I'm not a big Nelson fan, so I'll well, who it. is, right? <laughs> um, you wanted examples. I didn't say it'd be pretty. <laughs> it's like, no, nah, there's going to be flashbacks. <laughs> I mean, I think Extreme, Nelson, I mean, they all fit into the, the hair metal mm -hmm. scene, uh, which, yes. you know, it comes back to, you had, you had the big players and then everyone else got their moments in the sun. And it, it almost goes back to what you were saying about the stock, eight, uh, stock Aiken Waterman stuff, Rob, right? Where they all got their, their brief moments in the spotlight before it got shifted onto someone else. And I'm glad to say too, that I would, I'm gleefully and happily putting the red hot chili peppers in this camp. No. Um, <laughs> because you've got under the bridge, you've got Californication and give it away. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but they can't catch that lightning in a bottle again after that. Yeah, I guess not. See, they're one of those bands I think of as being absolutely massive, mostly because they just were in the UK. I mean. But they didn't get, I mean, as big as Blood Sugar Sex Magic was, um, that band did not live up to the hypes that their, that their label had, and especially if the album after it, they thought they were going to be like bigger, mm -hmm. which is just weird. Yeah, I, I mean, I think bizarrely they really hit 
a peak in the UK in the early 2000s. I mean, between Californication and By The Way, all of the tracks off of those two albums were stratospheric, and even Danny California from Stadium Arcadium did really well. And because of that, I make the assumption that they were just as popular in America with those albums, and when I actually look at how they charted, they weren't. And that's that's one of those ones that I was talking about earlier where there's just such a disconnect in my head. Yeah. And it's funny because on that for that band, I think of them more when I was like like teenager into my 20s and how I used to go see them all the time. And they were, to me, in my mind, they were huge, <laughs> but they mm-hmm. didn't really hit big until later. So that's I, a funny different it, perspective, isn't it? In like 2003, I think it was, they played two headline shows, two nights running in Hyde Park where they were supported by James fucking Brown. Wow. Admittedly, you know, that was James Brown past his peak, but I mean, they were huge in the UK in the 2000s. Isn't that funny? Because they both, James Mm -hmm. Brown and uh, Chili Peppers both were on the Woodstock show that we we did our episode on too. And I I, I wonder if they became friends there. I, uh, you know, I also, as much as this is weird to say, too, is I would put Devo in here because you had yeah. Whip It, Girl You Want, and Dr. Detroit. And really outside of that, on commercial radio in America, they just got, they just got abandoned. I, yet, yet if you think about their play on MTV, you know, like we're through being cool and all of us, you know, satisfaction. I mean, that's another, oh, yeah. thing, another aspect of it was MTV. So to, to think of it. When of of a band, maybe they didn't get massive airplay, but if they were all over MTV, you know, we, I'm saying that we as young kids or, you know, teenagers, 20s, we would know about it, right? Maybe it wasn't a huge radio hit though, but that's why I think some things in my mind were bigger than they were on radio and maybe weren't split end. For me, I didn't have access to MTV for years. I'd Mm -hmm. go to somebody else's house and watch it. So, And I was one of these people that always listened to the top 40 charts just to sort of learn new Mm -hmm. stuff. And, um, you know, I would go to Walgreens or Woolworths and buy 45s. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, kids, Walgreens and Woolworths (laughs) used to sell 45s. Ask your parents. I mean, I think like an example of that is Blue Oyster Cult, because I don't think they would have been, I don't think Don't Fear the Reaper and Burning for You would have been as big of hits for them if they weren't on MTV every two fucking seconds in the beginning of MTV because MTV didn't have videos to play. But they had Blue Oyster Cult and they had April Wine and they had, you know, the bands like that. What was really funny on on British music television in like the late 90s was they would often try and be trendsetters with bands, particularly on like the manufactured pop scene. Mm-hmm. So clearly some manager or label or promoter would pay them a bunch of money to play this song on repeat in the hope that the band would make it big. And I'm going to drift off topic here, but it's funny <laughs> because I'm going to talk about a no-hit wonder. Uh, I remember them very clearly really pushing a band called Email which was a boy group and their song literally went we are we are email we just can't fail guess what Ew. they failed <laughs> anyway that's 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 my off topic story on no hit one no topic yeah but yeah it's, it's interesting how music tv could really propel some of these and 
if MTV or eventually rival channels, you know, didn't promote the follow-ups, they would fall into this two, three, yeah. one category because of that. I mean, going back to seventy-two, you had Grand Funk Railroad with "We're an American Band" and the Locomotion, mm-hmm. and they're getting ready to tour now, and they're selling out. Wow. And, like, do you think someone like Vanilla Ice would have been as po- – I mean, maybe he would have. That song really was – but he had no, two he had, he had two singles, so he was in that category of two-hit wonders. He had Play That Funky Music and Ice Ice Baby, but – Yeah. yeah. Like, I don't know. Would he have been so huge had it not been for MTV also? Well, I, th- I think that he's in the same boat as the Delicious Vinyl folks that you had, yeah. right? Yeah. Because a lot of those records that they did with Delicious Vinyl wouldn't have gotten anywhere without MTV mm. and the videos. I mean, Tone Loke and Young MC did really smart videos, too, and that's why people remember them. Yeah, I like the Bust and Move video. So cute. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interestingly, we haven't really touched on the whole kind of hip-hop and urban scene, but that's pretty ripe for yeah one and two, uh, two and three hit wonders, I think, because you really look over the last 20 years and so much of what's popular musically has shifted into that genre and you get a lot of of those artists that a label will push and then just drop or you have someone like lauren hill who i think had oh. two solo hits before yeah. it was all over right or delight um, yeah well that's yeah. not really hit. but yes i mean i know what you're saying yeah. right mm-hmm. and i think that is just a function of rappers are everywhere right now and they can't all be absurdly popular they can't all be eminem or dr dre yeah right no 50 cent for every eminem you're gonna have a soldier boy or you're gonna have three <laughs> soldier, soldier boys boy. for every eminem <laughs> yes you are i mean that was also i was thinking you made me think of um the r&b stuff too like on vogue those bands you know that would that had few mm-hmm. massive hits but then of course you know people that went off and of course Beyonce is the hugest thing in the world, you know, but those kind of bands in that era too, just some of the two, one and two, three hit wonders of that kind of genre too. There was plenty of them. You got Rockwell, you've got like Culture Beat, you've got like just, God, they're everywhere. Yeah. I guess the only question is, do you think now in the days of streaming, and this is to kind of take the conversation full circle, Will two or three hit wonders continue to be a thing? Or do you think that in the modern music environment, we're now in a position where people latch onto something, become huge fans of it, and if it ever gets popular enough, they're going to still latch onto future material? Do Is the two or three hit wonder phenomenon over? I think that... One of the things that sort of puts this whole question into an interesting context is the surge in vinyl sales, because people aren't buying vinyl to hear one or two songs. They're buying vinyl to hear full albums. Uh, yeah. Um, so if we use that as the template, then yes, right? I think we're not going to see this again. But then looking at streaming, I think we are definitely might see it again, because people have the super short attention spans and they only want to hear two or three songs on an album and then they're done. You know, when you look at an artist, like, you know, whatever their radio thing is on Spotify, it's got like two or three songs by the artist. And then everything else is other people that are on their label or whatever. So I think that the industry has sort of shifted to getting an artist, two or three singles. And if the third single, if they're not platinum, they move on. 
So you're saying we might see even more. I think as we move past well, I, this era. well, it's it's tricky because I think if the people that collect vinyl win, no, but I think the people that stream win, then yes. It's a it's a sort of this double-edged sword uh that I'm kind of wrestling with. I think that we're gonna see more people that just have one song, two song, or three songs that are popular mainly because people have such a crazy attention span. Like yeah. Katy Perry was huge 10 years ago, but now she's almost an afterthought, right? Which is kind mm-hmm. of kind of sad. Well, on the flip side, you have Taylor Swift, who is just continuing to produce mega hit after mega hit and is yeah. probably, you know, alongside Ed Sheeran, the most popular artist in the world right now. Yeah. You know, it's interesting how some artists people really latch onto. And to your point, Rob, the attention span wonders with others and i wonder what that that for those mega stars is i mean personally i can't stand ed sheeran and i don't understand why he's such (laughs) such a big hit i mean i i I would from my perspective i think he had one song that i particularly liked and i would love it if he had been a one-hit wonder but there are so many people out there who do enjoy him yeah i know it's that's pretty nuts uh i don't think that i don't know if we can predict that you know to your to your main question um, rob had a good point there with the vinyl and stuff but i mean i also want to know who the the people vi- buying the vinyl are i mean is it mostly older people or are kids now buying vinyl is that a thing now for uh, younger kids people? buying vinyl is a thing yeah okay so well yeah i mean i by the time i hit my teenage years vinyl was done and I buy vinyl now. Yeah. yeah. I, admittedly, my vinyl buying habits, very rarely do I buy a new album on vinyl. You know, I have certain artists that I truly, truly adore, and I work to get their entire back catalog on vinyl, and I will buy a new record by them. Okay, so you're searching bins, basically. But, you're you're going back for, like, the catalog. Well, I'm, even, I'm even buying, you know, new press. Mm-hmm. You know, now if I take Iron Maiden, their '80s albums get a vinyl repress every couple of years, right? Uh, you know, and and as bands do these remixes, remasters of their old albums, they put them out on vinyl again, and I tend to pick those kind of special and deluxe editions up. Yeah, but anyway, I think we've had a really, really good and robust conversation on two and three hit wonders. We would love, uh, dear listener, to hear your thoughts on this. So head to our social media pages, comment on the post that links to this episode. We would love to hear your thoughts. What are some of your favorite two and three hit wonders? We're going to take a very brief a very brief break. Wow, that's a little bit of a tongue twister. And then we'll be back with our picks of the week. So stay tuned. Do you like podcasts? Then you're going to hate Thunder Talk. Tasteless subject matter. Mature humor. Contempt for our co-hosts. Unapologetic social views. Edgy music. And total irreverence for the nerd junk we love. Are all reasons why no one. No one. No one should listen to Thunder Talk. Find us on the ESO Network. And all podcasting platforms. Or don't. Whatever. And we're back. Time for picks of the week. And this time round, let's kick off with you, Rob. So I think before we jump into to that, I'm going to 
just sort of say that uh, I've spent most of today when we record this listening to the music of Ryuchi Sakamoto, uh, who passed away this morning. Well, actually, March 28th, but it was announced today, the day that we're recording this. And he's an interesting artist because he won two Golden Globes. He won a Grammy. He won a BAFTA and he won an Oscar. Right. Um, but his work on the scores for like Merry, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, is the thing he's going to be remembered for, as well as The Last Emperor and the Revenant, like he did the scores for all those. He's a, this artist has had tremendous influence over Electronica as a member of Yellow Moon Orchestra, right? And that band's a huge influence on bands like Sparks, for example, right? Mm-hmm. Um, his 1980 album, B2, B2 Unit, that thing is like regarded as the classic of early Electronica. And he made a song called Riot in Lagos that is sort of like been pinged by people that do electronica and hip hop as like an influential record of the time. So just an amazing uh, actor, composer, and musician um, collaborated with nearly everybody. I mean, obviously David Sylvian's the one people talk about, but also as to camera, Brian Wilson, David Byrne, Iggy Pop, Adrian Ballou, Laurie Anderson, you know, so just an interesting and prolific artist. So I've been listening to a lot of his records today uh, just to kind of, one remember it's like oh man these records are great and i yeah. completely forgot about that um the other things i've been listening to um this week is the 30th anniversary of the release of the new of the first suede album Ooh, so i've been listening no to that a lot 30? um oh god yeah and then uh also if you want um a little bit of angst in in your world there's a band from manchester called ist 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 and you know, they're kind of in the same vein as like Gang of Four, the Idols, you know, sort of like really like heavy post-punk kind of stuff. Also, I want to recommend uh, the new Depeche Mode album, uh, Memento Mori, which is really, really dark. And I did not think that they would make their best record in two decades after somebody in their band died. But in that in that instance, minimalism and toning down the flash has really worked for them. So that's great. And then uh, lastly, uh, a film that's coming out in wide circulation called um, Who the Hell are Blood, Sweat, and Tears, right? Mm. And basically, it's about Blood, Sweat, and Tears touring behind the Iron Curtain in 1970. And they were the first Western band to play behind the Iron Curtain. And they've got, you know, Americans pissed at them for going playing behind the Iron Curtain, despite the fact they were invited by the state department right then they've got you know the soviet bloc watching them and they have like fans that are coming up to meet them and get their autographs and like the cops are just pummeling them wow right? that sounds and interesting wow. the band really the band and i know nothing about blood sweat yeah. and tears really but like just listening to the band talk about what happened to them and the experience of it and it's one of those moments where politics meets music that is mm-hmm. uh incredibly profound and um since we spent a lot of time talking about the seventies and sort of music of the times that also does tie into that as well. Wow. That sounds like a good one. Yeah. Very cool. 30 years for that first <gasps> suede album. That's crazy. But it still holds up, man. That thing. Still- oh, it does. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, their first three albums for me, are just works of genius anyway. Uh, yeah. All right, Steph, what have you got this week? I have two things. And one is going to shock you a little bit, but I'll go with my my, my first um, pick, which is 
My friend Dana Athens from the band Jane Lee Hooker, who are amazing, she just released a new single uh, to, on March 31st called In My Bones. Um, it is, she's, her voice is like, just, it's like butter. Like it, it's, it's rocking, but it's like soulful and it's, uh, it's, it cuts through everything in the most beautiful way. So Jane Lee Hooker, a little bit more rocking, but Dana's solo tracks kind of have a, a more like almost gospel kind of poppier feel to them. And this is just like, it, this song really showcases her voice so well. It's like a soaring vocal. Um, her lyrics are really uplifting. And like, you can listen to that. You can listen to her and you just feel like joy radiating from her. And it's so, I just love her so much. One cool thing about this track is that her dad played piano and keys on the song. And I just, I think it's so cool Aww. that she included her father. Um, so Dana's going to have a full length record later in the year, but she's going to have one more single in May and one more single in July. Um, you could find her on her website, which is just DanaAthens.com, but also on like Spotify and iTunes and everything. And um, all the social media is just under Dana Athens. So please check out In My Bones because really it's so fabulous. And she also has a song called Peace, Love, and Shine that she released a few years ago that is absolutely gorgeous too. So that's pick number one. Um, pick number two is a, is a happy accident choice um, that I I was trying to figure out where we could post the Tony Levin episode. Yes, we did interview Tony Levin a couple episodes ago, people. Check that out. Um and I ran in, uh, in, in the, on the internet, I ran into someone who runs a, um, is an admin for the Australian Chapman stick player, uh, site. And his name is Justin Levis. I hope I'm saying that right, Justin. He's in a band called Reckless Collusion. After a long discussion with him, we discovered each, we, each other was, were in bands. His band is Reckless Collusion and they are pretty much prog rock, Anthony. <laughs> and I loved every song I heard. I heard eight, I watched and heard eight songs of theirs on YouTube. Um, I, I guess if I had to pick my favorites, I would say Axis, Ghosts, and Clouds Over the Asylum are, are like my favorites, but they're all really cool. The videos are super cool and they have like, um, they got like random people in them that they feature and they have like sort of these, it's almost like a transy dance element to their songs too, which I, I absolutely love. And the vocals are really kind of low key. So they kind of like, it's a really good juxtaposition with the, the rockier kind of sound sounds of the band. So, um, and you'll be interested to know that on one of their songs called Kryptonite, Pat Mastelato is on drums and is it Marcus Reuter or Reuter? Reuter? Does anybody know from Tony from Tony's band? Um, no clue. I'm not sure. If I'm saying that wrong, I'm sorry. But uh, our, he's on guitar on that song. Um, but other than that, it's just it's Justin and this other uh, the other guy is named Andrew Jones. So check out Reckless Collusion. You could find him on YouTube, but Bandcamp also. Yeah, they're definitely on my list to check out, and I'll be giving them some. Yes, I think you'd like time them. on my playlist this week. They, they describe themselves, I mean, he was sort of describing himself as a mix between like porcupine tree and a hint of like Carnival and Cog, which are these other prog rock bands from Australia. So. Very cool. And that's the perfect segue into what I've been listening to because I just got a TV in my home office, which has meant while I've been working, I've been watching a few concert DVDs <laughs> and 
particular shout out, of course, to my boys in Porcupine Tree. They're two uh, concert releases, um, Arriving Somewhere and Anesthetize, have had some very heavy rotation this week. And if only it had some of the latest material, it would take me right back to that night in Radio City Music Hall. Oh, yes. Beyond that, I have mostly been listening to a band called Church of the Cosmic Skull, who I am going to see play here in Atlanta in two nights time, which by the time this goes out will be in the past. So by the time you listen to this, I will have seen them, but they've got four albums um, and their their whole shtick is they're a, a fake cult, right? <laughs> so they, they act like they're this, this cult. They all dress in white. They're led by brother Bill. Oh my God, I, want um, <laughs> I need to see this. Their albums are called, they've got Is Satan Real? Science Fiction, Everybody's Going to Die, and There Is No Time. And Everybody's Going to Die came out at the latter half of 2019, and I got a t-shirt with that on right at the beginning of 2020. Oh my god! (laughs) (laughs) And probably a month later, the pandemic hit, and I just went, I can't wear this t-shirt. Profits? No. (laughs) I will be wearing it on Tuesday night, though. So... Um, that's really what I've been listening to. It's been a lot of fun, um, with both those and, uh, and Church of the Cosmic Skull and and the Porcupine Tree DVDs. So, uh, with that, we're at the end of the show. Rob, where can everyone find you? So you can find me on, um, needcoffee.com and the Weekend Justice podcast. Also, you can find me, uh, Wednesdays on KDHX in St. Louis from 7 to 9 Central. It streams online at kdhx.org and everything is archived for two weeks at kdhx.org. So if you're out buying a goat or something, you can listen later, um, however you want to do it. And then uh, I also am about uh, six episodes deep into my um, side hustle for Louder Than War Radio, um, Antics. It's on Mondays, 6 to 8 Greenwich Mean Time. So just adjust that to whatever works for you. And um, those are also archived on Mixcloud as well. If you want to hear that, the best thing you can do is uh, listen to it on the Louder Than War webpage and get all the info um, on the Louder Than War radio webpage on how to track that down and find it. Awesome. Thank you, Rob. Steph, where can people find you? Okay. Well, you can find me on Instagram at Stephanie. No, you can't find me there. <laughs> you can find me on Instagram at there underscore r underscore birds. But you can find me on Facebook at Stephanie Seymour Music. Uh, you can find me on my website at therearbirds.com. Uh, and Bandcamp under my name, Stephanie Seymour. And, of course, on all the streaming platforms everywhere, like Spotify and stuff like that. Very cool. And do check both of my well-esteemed co-hosts out. Now, for the co-host who is not here this evening, our uh, our fearless leader, Alan Siler, you can find him on a number of podcasts, including Earth Station Trek, Doctor Who, From Auton to Zygon, and Alan's Record Bin, as well as with various books and what have you that are published through Cosmic Creative. And you can find links to everything he does at cosmicpress.com that's k-o-z-m-i-c press.com so go and check out the other things alan does and you can find me mostly here these days i don't really do much else since my other podcast is on hiatus we love that you're here i'm glad to be here thank you stephanie 
So with that, thank you so much for joining us for this episode. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this as much as we have enjoyed uh, talking about it. We'll be back with another exciting episode next time round, where Alan will be back in the hot seat, thankfully. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, until then, we'll see you next time. She drives me crazy. I <laughs> just ask you. Like, like no, no woman else. else. <laughs> this has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.